So we know from building structures, from dens, you know, you kids like to build dens, I used to like to build dens, to houses and beyond, that the foundation of a church, uh, of not, not of the church, of a building is the most crucial part, isn't it? And because without the foundation, the building would collapse. And I believe your elder Nigel, who's a builder, he would know that. Unfortunately, he's not here today. Um, but it's the same with cakes as well. I, I need to appeal to everyone here. Um, is, has, there, has anyone watched Great, Great British Bake Off? Unfortunately, I had to watch it because my friends forced me to watch it this year. Um, and anyway, how many times have you seen uh, the contestants build their cakes and they, they go and take it to whoever the judges are. Forgive me for not knowing the names. Um, yeah, how many times have they brought it to the, to the, to the judges and the, found, uh, the, the cake has collapsed? The, fa- the foundations weren't sturdy, were they? I said, well, in the same way, it's the same with the church. It needs to be built on the right foundation. So let's go into God's word this evening and see what God wants to, uh, us to hear through his word. And so we see in the text that I selected today, uh, in Matthew 16, that a promise, is, a promise is made, isn't it? It's made to the church. The promiser being Jesus, and the recipients being the church. And what does the church mean? Well, simply, it just means congregation. And if you want to go further than that, it just means God's people, those who trust in him. And now, what is the promise? That's, that's the main thing. Well, the promise is that upon this rock, now we don't know what the rock is just yet, we're going to go into that, that Jesus shall build his church, or his kingdom, and the gates of Hades, or the gates of death, will not overpower it. And he will give us the keys to the kingdom of heaven, or of God, to bind and to loose the things on earth. So the promise is that upon a rock, Jesus is going to build his church. He's going to bring people into his family. He's going to He's going to bring them in to be his people. And the power of death or Hades will not overpower this. You can't stop God. And he will give us the keys to the kingdom to bring others in too. So we as God's people, we are entrusted with the keys to the kingdom. What are the keys? The keys essentially are, uh, the keys to the kingdom is the gospel message, isn't it? The gospel which reconciles us, man, to God's through Jesus' substitutionary atonement, where we guilty lawbreakers, we've broken God's law, unless you haven't, which you have, heads up. Um, yeah, we are, we're, we're, we're as guilty uh, lawbreakers are freed from the punishment that we deserve. But not only that, but we also are given the reward as if we followed all those laws. We're given the reward as uh, a law-abiding citizen. But the question is, today, what is the rock? Upon what rock shall Jesus build his church? So firstly, I'd like to start on talking about what does Jesus not build his church upon? And then we'll work towards what Jesus does build his church upon. And then after that, we're going to look to the application to the believer. So my first question, what does Jesus not build his church upon? Let's dig into the text. We see uh, Jesus confronts his disciples, doesn't he? He he asks, who do the people think I am? And the the, the disciples respond, and 
They say that, well, some people think that you're a prophet from God. Some think you're John the Baptist reincarnated because uh, he'd just been killed. And then others think, others think you are Elijah. Well, Elijah was the person who was to come to announce the Messiah. So what the Jews knew was Jesus was a someone. He was a someone from God, maybe a teacher, maybe a prophet, but they weren't too sure who he was. They had an inkling, but not, nothing more than that. And so I think we need to think about why they thought Jesus was someone from God, maybe a prophet. And to do that, we'd have to look into the Old Testament. We'd have to look at the criteria that the Jews would have uh, for a prophet from God, how to know that they were someone from God. And then we also need to look at Jesus' interactions with people and see, uh, see what happens. So the criteria that Israelites would have had, would, uh, you'd find it in Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 13 and chapter 18. And I'm just going to go through a list of criteria in which I, I think you know, the, the Jews would have had to recognize a prophet. And so I'd say the first criteria would be taken from Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1 to 5. And essentially the summation of that passage is that if a prophet arises among you and they perform signs, they come true, you know, they do all these wonders, they predict the future, and it comes true. But if they then tell you to go worship another god, they're not a true prophet. And so then implicit in that first criterion is a second positive one, that a prophet of God will always call you to serve the one and true living God, Jehovah or Yahweh. And then the third criterion is taken from Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 to 22, which in summary say again, if a prophet rises up among you and he speaks for the Lord and things don't come to pass, which he said would come to pass, then they are a false prophet. And then the fourth criterion would be taken from a passage in 2 Kings chapter 5. Um, it's about Elijah and uh, so. And the Lord, in this passage, he validates his prophets by giving them the ability to perform miraculous signs and wonders. And so in the passage concerned, Elijah is granted the ability to work wonders by God so God can authenticate his word. And a leper is cured by that, and someone comes to faith. So having looked at this criterion that the Israelites would have had, if we now look through the Gospels, I'm not, we're not going to obviously turn because there's going to be too many uh, scenarios of which Jesus did all these four criteria. I'm just going to, you know, say it. So for the first, second, and fourth criterion, we'd see Jesus fulfilling this throughout the Gospel. He was healing people. He was casting out demons. He even raised Lazarus from the dead. But not only this, but Jesus calls people to worship the Lord. Even testifying in Mark chapter 12, verse 29 to 30, that the greatest commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall worship him with all your heart, with all your minds, and with all your strength. And so he also fulfills the third criterion, which is uh, he told of things which were to come and they came to pass. So, for instance, he said that uh, there's a day coming where he'll be passed over to the Romans and he'll be crucified. 
But only three days later, he'll, be, he'll rise again. And we saw that. He, it came to pass, didn't it? From the beginning of his ministry, Jesus foretold of the things to come. And lo and behold, they came to pass. That's why we're all here today. It's because Jesus said something and it came to pass. Hallelujah. So not only this, but also Jesus, when reading from the Old Testament and explaining it to the people, even from a very young age, like a young nipper, he, he was able to correctly exegete a passage from the Old Testament. Jesus was wise beyond his years. They were, the people were stunned with his understanding and wisdom of, with which he spoke. So given all of that, with Nicodemus, the people were thinking, this man is certainly from God. We just don't know who he is. So the Jews were thinking, Jesus... He's a someone, not sure totally who he is. Maybe he's, maybe he's got good teachings. But is it upon that rock that he builds his church? Is it? And we have to answer that with an emphatic no. It's not, it's not upon that rock that Jesus shall build, build his church. You know, if we look to the scripture that we were reading at the beginning, we'd find out that the rock, it is upon the rock of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God, that Jesus shall build his church. And a lot of people think that Christ is Jesus' second name. It's not. It's a title. And we just became so used to putting Jesus and Christ next together, we think Christ is his last name. But no, this is a title. This is a title given to Jesus. And we know that the rock that uh, is, is Jesus, the rock, upon that he, what, uh, the rock upon which he will build his church, is Jesus, because in the scripture, multiple times, Jesus is called the rock. In Ephesians verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 20, it says, Christ Jesus is the cornerstone of the church, which in building, uh, if uh, Nigel was here, he would be able to tell me that the, the, the foundation or the cornerstone of, uh, of a building is the most important stone to the, to the integrity of, of the, of the building, With, without the foundation stone being laid correctly, everything's going to collapse. And so, again, in, in Corinthians chapter 10, uh, Paul calls Jesus the spiritual rock from which we all, from which we all drink. And in Peter, in one, uh, in First Peter chapter two, Paul, Peter calls Jesus the living stone, the choice stone, the precious cornerstone, the very cornerstone. So, okay, we know that Jesus, the Christ, is the rock upon which Jesus will build his church. But what we have to ask ourselves is, what does this mean? We need to go into Scripture and find out what does this mean. It's, it's okay knowing that Jesus is the Christ, but loads of people say Jesus is the Christ, or they say that Jesus is someone. The Mormons believe Jesus is the Christ, but they believe in a different Christ. You have the Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe in a different, different Christ. We need to know the true Christ. We need to ask Scripture what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And so, with that, that is a big, big question to ask because there's so many answers to it. There's so much to know about Jesus being the Christ, the, the Son of the living God. He's infinite. He's immeasurable. He's incomprehensible. And yet, we can still know him. And we can still have a relationship with him by faith. 
And so I, I just want to share one aspect of what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. And so that, before we go into that aspect, I think it would be good for us to know a quick definition of what it means, what the word Christ means. And so the Greek word is Christ, Christos, and it comes from the Jewish, Jewish word Messiah, which means anointed one, uh, the holy one. Um, and so this Christ in scripture uh, was said to be anointed by the Holy Spirit to execute three offices. You have the office of the prophet, you have the office of the priest, and you also have the office of the king. And tonight I just want to focus on one aspect, because if I stand here, all, I'd be here all night if we're, we're going to be talking about uh, all the things, nooks and crannies of what it means Jesus to be the Christ. So I just want to focus on what it means for the Christ to be the prophet. So Jesus, as the Christ, is the better and greater prophet of God. He surpasses all other prophets that came before him. He is better, he's a better prophet than Moses. He's a better prophet than David. He's a better prophet than Elijah. He's a better prophet than Isaiah, than Ezekiel, and name every other prophet uh, in the Old Testament. He's better than all of them. And we're going we're to find out why he's the better one. Jesus is the prophet of the Lord uh, the, the Lord spoke to Moses concerning Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 to 19. It's just before the criteria that I, I, I said earlier. And this was, God promised the Jews that he was going to raise up a prophet like Moses. But the Jews didn't see that the Christ would fill this office of the prophet. And a great example of this is in John chapter 1, verse 25, where the Jews are asking John the Baptist, who, who do you say I am? And, and they ask him, are you the Christ or uh, are you the prophet? And so the Jews thought they, they were two separate people, but it, it's not the case. We, they're actually the same person. So I think it's good, before we go in a little bit, to look at the Old Testament evidence to indicate that the Christ would hold the office of the prophet. So let's, let's turn back to Deuteronomy 18. We've got our Bibles in front of us. If you go to chapter 18, verse 18 to 20, uh, it says, The Lord says to Moses that he will raise up a prophet from among his countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them everything that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever does not listen to my words, which he speaks in my name, I myself will require it, require it of him. And the key part of that is like you. What does the Lord mean when he says he's going to raise up a prophet like Moses? Well, when you look at the end of Deuteronomy, you get to chapter 34, verse 10. We find the answer of what it, what it means for Moses, uh, for it to be a prophet like Moses. And it says in, in, in Deuteronomy 34, verse 10, that since that time, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses. And this is the key bit. Whom? Whom the Lord knew face to face. The key bit to being a prophet like Moses is to know the Lord face to face and to speak face to face with him. No other prophet that arose in Israel was like that. 
And isn't this similar of the relationship between the king and, the, and, and God, who's called the Christ in Psalm 2? Uh, isn't it similar of their relationship? Because in 2 Samuel, when, you, uh, when David's given this pro- promise that God is going to build a house for David, an everlasting kingdom, where God, through God's, uh, David's son, shall dwell upon the throne, that the king that is promised is going to be a son to God's. God is going to be a father to the king. So isn't, there's, a, there's a bit of a closeness of relationship, a, sim, a similar, similarity between the two, uh, the king and the prophet. But not only, not only this, but the Christ is also spoken of in Isaiah, in the servant songs. And in, in, either, in, in these songs, it mentions how the Christ will be given a mouth like a sharp sword. So the Christ is going to speak for the Lord. And so since... The evidence of the Old Testament, briefly, it shows that the king and the prophet are said to be in a very close relationship. The king is also to speak for God. It's, it's, quite, poss- it's quite possible that the Christ would hold the title of the prophet. And so, we've seen the Old Testament evidence. I think it was good to go into that. But I think we should look to the New Testament, which clearly reveals everything in the Old Testament. And so let's see how Jesus is the true and better prophet of God from the New Testament. So in the Gospel of John, Jesus constantly speaks the words given to him. He says he constantly he speaks the words given to him by the Father. And, and there's a lot of passages in, in the Gospel of John that, that say this. And for time's sake, I will not go through it. Um, and not only this, but he's also given the works of the Father to do, which is also part of this prophetic office that Jesus fulfills as the Christ. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't just claim to speak for the Lord. He goes further to say that if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. For he and the Father are one. Jesus doesn't just claim to speak for God. He doesn't just claim to be a prophet. He claims to be the God who he is revealing in himself. He claims to be God tabernacled in the flesh. And so you remember earlier I said that a brief definition of what a prophet is, is is someone who reveals God to the people. Well, Jesus does this in the ultimate way, the most ultimate way. He reveals God in himself because he is God's. So here are the words of the author uh, to the Hebrews. He says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions, in many ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world, and He is the radiance of his glory, the the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. And when when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, of the majesty on high, having become so much more excellent than the angels, to the extent that he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So Jesus, in the incarnation, he shows us the Father, not just because he speaks for him, but he is the exact representation of his nature. He is God. Jesus is God. 
he holds the title of the prophet in the ultimate sense that he is God. Well, so what? So what that Christ is God? What, what, who cares? Well, if Christ is God and he did die for us and was raised again to new life, well, who has the power over death? We don't have the power over death. But God does. So in Jesus coming back to life, who, who is he? Who is he? He's God. And because he's God, we ought to, we ought to trust in his words. And so the application to, to this is therefore threefold. Firstly, every word that Jesus has spoken concerning your salvation is true. Today, if you believe in Jesus, God says to you, you are my child. Uh, my child, your sins are forgiven. No matter what you've done this week, you, you've been forgiven. I've reserved a place for you uh, in my new creation, which I'll dwell with you. My child, while you're in the world, though you may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, my rod and my staff shall comfort you. I'll be, I'll be with you, child, until the very end. So Christ the rock is the firm foundation upon which we can build our lives. And so secondly, every command that Jesus spoke is binding on our hearts, our minds, and our will. Because he is God, because he is the prophet, we have to follow all the laws that he has given. And so by the mercies given to us by God, we, we are to live our lives as living sacrifices for the Lord. That is our spiritual worship. We have to follow his moral teachings, the Ten Commandments, as best as we can. And when we fail, it's okay because Jesus has died for us. It's not okay that we sin, okay? I, just to put it out there, it's not okay. But because the Lord is our priest as well, he forgives us. And before we even confess to him, we are forgiven. And so we can come to him and confess our sins and he shall forgive us. And he will remind us also of who we are in him. We are forgiven, we're clean, we're made righteous. We are his children. We're going to be with him one day, truly. And the thirdly, and this is the main, the main point uh, for this sermon, is that upon the confession of Jesus being the Christ, that he is the prophet of God, the eternal son of God, he will build his church. And so we saw a glimpse of what it means for Jesus to be, the prophet, uh, to, to be the Christ. And it means that he is the prophet, which means he is God. And therefore, it is upon the confession that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is going to build his church. And therefore, because that is the case, we ought to preach only Christ. We must preach the true Christ. We must share the true Christ. If we're not preaching the true Christ, then we're not preaching anything. If we want to see our family and friends come to Jesus, we must give them the true Christ, and therefore we must know who the true Christ is. And the true Christ is God. And we ought not to try and devise our schemes and doctrines like the so-called modern Christian who try and water down the gospel to try and make it less offensive. And we're not trying to offend people 
when we share the gospel, but ultimately it will because, because of our sin. And we don't like to be told we're sinners. But we must not war it down. We must give them the true Christ. Because only upon the confession of the true Christ will people be saved from his wrath. But as Christians, we've been given the gospel that reconciles man to God by the Christ. And each of us are ministers of this gospel. We are the priests of God. And so like Peter, we are given the key to the kingdom. And we can, sh- we can give this key to other people by sharing and preaching the gospel of reconciliation. And we, by doing that, we will see God bind sin and Satan in this world. And we'll see people loosen to serve the gods, their creator, and hopefully their father too. And so God gives us this promise that if we preach Christ, we will see, we will see people saved. We'll see people enter into the church. We'll see the church grow to the ends of the world. And therefore, with that promise in our hands, we can go out and not be afraid. We can go to the highways and byways and invite people to believe in this gospel with with this promise in our hand. And so with that, our closing song tonight will be Facing the Task Unfinished. I think think it's the best way to, to, to finish off this service because... It's true, we've got, we're facing a task that is unfinished. There's so many people that need to be reached. But we have this promise. We have the promise that God is going to build his church.